1: Good day, welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society, I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Doctor Katia Hoyer. Doctor Hoyer is a visiting research fellow at King's College London and has written for, among other publications, the Washington Post, History Today, and has been on the BBC. And today we are discussing her book, Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871-1918, to 1918, published by the History Press. Welcome, Dr. Hoyer.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, doctor, why did you write this book?
0: Um, largely because, um, it is this year, the 150th anniversary of the foundation of the first, uh, German nation state. And I wanted to make sure that there's some sort of debate around, uh, how far Germany has come since then, um, where Germany stands today in Europe and in the world, um, whether it's indeed succeeded to, to form, um, a sort of sense of nationhood since then. Um, I'm just intrigued by the way that it's basically the youngest European um, nation state and not much debate has been around um, kind of what has been happening around its um, kind of identity today, if you will, even in this in this 150th anniversary um, in Germany. This hasn't really been picked up all that much, um, mainly because I think it isn't quite um, as much of a black or white issue as some of the other um, kind of more. Darker episodes in in German history, and therefore people don't really quite know where to place this event. So I wanted to make sure that there's some sort of debate uh, going on, and hopefully the the book has achieved that this year.
1: If your book could be said to have a thesis, what would it be?
0: Um, that the first incarnation of Germany, namely the the sort of so-called Second Empire, was at least a semi-democracy. It's often kind of put into a, a line with uh, Nazism later and, and sort of, you know, almost seen as a precursor to that. And I, I strongly read against that and think the German Empire, as it's called, um, needs to be seen on its on its own terms and evaluated in a more nuanced and more complicated way than than has been the case so far.
1: So you would not agree with the um, so-called Sonderweg thesis most um, prominently associated with uh, Hans Ulrich Wieler?
0: No, and I think the uh, vastly the consensus over the last few decades in German historiography has moved away from that as well. Um, But nonetheless, because of uh, various issues in the in the first, um, you know, sort of German nation state, it's still been interpreted as a sort of very one sided, uh, negative um, kind of political entity that suddenly entered the, the European um, landscape, where, whereas I think the we do need to appreciate the fact that there was a parliament universally um, elected by men still, but but nonetheless quite democratic for the time. All, all men over the age of 25 were allowed to vote. Um, it's, it also, as much as it stands in the tradition of Prussian militarism, it also stands in the tradition of, of Prussian um, kind of liberal sentiment as well. And I think that's all been undervalued to some extent. So I do rail against the idea that um, kind of Nazism and and nationalism and all the problems that we see in the 20th century are easily traced back to the origins of Germany in 1871.
1: How did the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation differ from other states in pre-1800 Europe? And um, following from that, would, do you agree with the um, recent revisionist arguments of pe- people like Peter Wilson, which evaluate the Holy Roman Empire on a higher level than was subs- was traditionally the case?
0: Well, the Holy Roman Empire was a was a strange concept, really. I mean, you know, it's famously been said that it was neither holy nor was it Roman, nor was it an empire. Um, uh, it is basically a a sort of collective. Uh, term for over 400 principalities that existed. So so this is sort of like dukedoms and states and kingdoms and city-states and and all sorts of uh, kind of German-speaking political entities. Um, And the only loosely um, sort of combining factor there that, that made them this Holy Roman Empire was the fact that they had some form of allegiance to the Holy Roman Emperor. That usually just meant um, defensive uh, action. So say if the if the Holy Roman Emperor decided that war was needed against an enemy that wasn't part of the German state, then they should, in theory, have rallied behind him um, and followed him into war. Um, that doesn't always work, not least because the Holy Roman Emperor um, was, was usually a Catholic. Um, and therefore, the, the Protestant northern states uh, would quite often find it difficult to see why they should follow him basically into a conflict that might have nothing to do with them. So basically, the Holy Roman Emperor himself always ended up haggling and begging and pleading and controlling and threatening the other states um, into even this, this very basic kind of concept of, of military alliance. So... It's a bit misleading that term and, and also the fact that then this is known as or this is kind of often perceived as the first German Empire um, is a bit complicated or kind of a bit problematic because it, it doesn't really have kind of the trappings of of a, of a unified state in that sense or of a unified empire. So in that respect, it is different from other um, um, states such as, say, France or, or England in the sense that it isn't really a centralised political entity but but more of a kind of loose conglomeration of of german speaking states
1: how did the german bund which was came into existence in 1814 1815 differ from the empire and could it have been said uh subsequently to have been a step in the direction of german unity
0: Yes, to the latter. Um, so it definitely uh, was a step in that direction, simply because it went a little bit further than the, than the Holy Roman Empire. So they also what they had in common was that they also uh, acted as a as a defensive agreement. Um, and in this case, this usually worked. So to give you an example, when um, when Prussia um, and Austria Begin to um, sort of have a have a conflict with Denmark in the north over the um, dukedoms of Schleswig and Holstein. Um, the this defensive kind of mechanism of the Bund is triggered, and the other states follow them into that conflict, even though in theory they have nothing really to gain from it. So it, it worked, um, but it also acted as a loose supranational kind of entity on, on economic terms. So there was, um, for instance, some form of, of market beginning to crystallize among those then 39 states. Um, and that's another difference, actually. They they uh, unified those over 400 um, entities into just 39 uh, German states uh, after the defeat of Napoleon um, in 1815. Uh, and so basically it made it a lot easier for um, those states to have some sort of agreement with with one another over over certain um, economic issues as well. So, for example, uh, railway network at um, sort of the development thereof uh, was beginning to really become an issue to to the larger industrializing states like Prussia, for example. They wanted to have that across uh, the the different German lands so that you could transport um, goods and raw materials, coal, iron ore in particular. Uh, from A to B without paying too much, kind of you know, internal um, tariffs and taxes and things. Um, and so out of that came a much closer economic uh, collaboration. But importantly, they still it still didn't go as far as to say, for instance, um, unify the currency or weights and measurements and, and all the other things that you need for a unified market. So it's, it's a step further in the direction of German unification, but not one that can be seen as a nation-state yet.
1: Would you evaluate the revolution of 1848 as, uh, politically speaking, a failure?
0: Um, well, it's famously been said that that was the turning point where Germany failed to turn, <laughs> or Europe failed to turn. Um, in that sense, um, it was a failure because it was crushed um, and didn't achieve its aims, So it, it was a peculiar mix really of socialism, liberalism, um, people just being upset about uh, the sort of dire conditions that they lived in. Um, there was a series of bad harvests in the 1840s as well. So people were starving uh, particularly badly in those years. Um, and all of those things combined into a very unhappy um, European population that that wanted to see change. There was also still a hangover from the French Revolution in the sense that people had begun to think about power structures and and the divine right of kings was being broken down and all those things. So, if you want to judge the revolutions on the basis of did they uh, immediately bring down the old regime, um, so the sort of you know more uh, traditionalist concepts of monarchy. Then it was a failure, but what they did achieve was that um the the elites were seriously frightened um because in in various uh points in Germany, particularly in areas like Bavaria and so on where where there were direct attacks on the on the palaces um of the nobility and, and on the nobility themselves um they came so close to achieving their aims that the uh, old elites were basically frightened into uh, making concessions um, and so you do for instance now see fairly strong parliaments in places like Prussia that are beginning to get more rights. Um, so the Prussian parliament at this point for example is in charge of um, budget for example so they pretty much decide whether or not the Prussian king can go to war and all of those things are uh, implemented not because of the nobility have suddenly found a, a sort of deep longing for democracy, but it, it's because they're frightened of, of what will happen if they don't give the masses something. Um, and so these compromises that you begin to see all over the German lands and elsewhere as well um, come out of the fear that the 1848 revolutions have uh, triggered. So in that sense, they they push um, a very, very reluctant and resilient um, and stubborn old regime into making the reforms that um, were needed, um, which otherwise wouldn't have happened because they wouldn't have voluntarily relinquished um, any power.
1: So that's why Prussia had a revised uh, pseudo-responsible parliament and constitution as of 1850.
0: Yeah, indeed. Um, And I mean, even that was still uh, despised and opposed by a lot of people in Prussia, but it it was seen as a necessary step to avoid um kind of unrest on that scale again.
1: Would it be said could, could it be said the case that in retrospect the Klein Deutsch uh, solution to the issue of German unity was predetermined?
0: Um yes in a way because that um so what this in effect means is that Austria was pushed out of the um out of out of a sort of German nation state that was beginning to evolve. Um I think it was more or less inevitable that the clash between the two largest German states in the Bund, namely Prussia and Austria, had to come to a head in in some way um and and Otto von bismarck the the Prussian prime minister later um from from eighteen sixty two uh realized this and basically said from the off that 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 wasn't gonna happen, you can't have two. Uh, very sort of powerful and strong minded and single minded entities within um, the Bund, and both of them wanted um, kind of preeminence over it. The other problem was that um, in the 1815 arrangement of the Bund, um, the decision was made to give Austria the chairmanship over the Bund in, in perpetuity. So it didn't, revol- uh, didn't revolve around all of the German states and not even between Prussia and, and Austria. They just had the chairmanship and that was it. Um, and as Prussia became more and more powerful, um, it became more and more difficult for, for Austria, which had kind of stuck with the very old fashioned agrarian system, whilst Prussia was moving ahead with industrialisation. Um, it, so it became more difficult for Austria eventually to justify why, should, why they should um, maintain the leadership of the Bund uh, in perpetuity. And so eventually some sort of decision had to be made um, and Prussia eventually provokes um, a war with with Austria um, and that in, in 1866. And, and the so-called Brothers War or German War, basically, because it was fought between the two German states, uh, settled that, that question once and for all, and it made it impossible for Austria to uh, to be part of this new um, uh, political construct uh, that, that was being developed with all of the other German states in it.
1: Why was uh, Otto von Bismarck uh, appointed as Prussian minister-president in 1862?
0: Um, He had wanted that role for quite some time. He was a very, very ambitious Prussian um, aristocrat, a so-called Juncker, um, as they were called, Um, but had very extreme and radical views and and was sort of known as a a bit of a hothead um, among the Prussian elite. Um, And so when... um, So the previous king during the 1848 revolutions, um, which we just talked about, was was Frederick Willem the uh, Fourth. When he died, um, his brother Willem the First took over. So he was Willem the First of Prussia and then later also the first German Kaiser. Um, And he was quite a a sort of I wouldn't say a quiet individual, but very, very traditional, old fashioned um, also very old. I mean, he was born in the previous century in I want to say 97, um, 1797. Um so very old fashioned, very traditional, the idea of appointing a sort of uh, hothead and extremist almost like Bismarck um, frightened him a little bit. And so what he did, first of all, is he just sent them out, sent him out of the country. So he became the Prussian ambassador uh, to Russia and then to France so that he basically was kept quiet with fairly influential positions, but not a position that was actually in uh, Germany or in Berlin. Um, And so eventually what happened was that at home um, at the Prussian court, um, the Prussian king, Willem I, ran into problems with Parliament. Parliament had become increasingly liberal um, and and quite uh, confident now. So they were basically pushing for their rights, particularly that right I was mentioning earlier to uh, to have the right to um, set the, the military budget. Whilst the king was still of the opinion that the army is under his command, so therefore he gets to decide how to run it and how much money to spend on it. Um, And so the two clashed over military reforms, um, king and parliament, um, and parliament simply refused to pass um, the the budget that the king wanted for his his military reforms. Um, And that whole conflict was so um, heated that eventually Willem had a bit of a breakdown uh, like a mental breakdown and, and burst into tears and said, fine, he'll abdicate and, and just pass the crown over to his liberal son, Frederick III, uh, who was married to, um uh, had an English wife, Victoria, who was Queen Victoria's oldest daughter and, and brought the sort of English liberalism into the marriage as well. So he was kind of a, a power couple in the waiting, uh, wanting to reform Prussia into a more liberal kingdom. Um, and so Wilhelm was on the, on the brink of, of just giving up and that frightened the old elites um at, at court um and they they sent um Otto von Bismarck a, a famous telegram to Paris which which basically said hurry there's danger and delay um and Bismarck immediately hurried back uh from France um and uh basically said to Willem, you you do not abdicate if you abdicate now you basically give in to the liberals and they will destroy Prussia um, don't worry, you make me um, Minister-President or, or Prime Minister, if you want to see it like that. Um, and I will go in and sort this conflict out with Parliament. And that's effectively what he did. He stood in front of Parliament and, and said these famous words that are also the title of my book, um, that only with blood and iron uh, will the great questions of the day be decided. Meaning, never mind your liberalism, what Prussia needs is um, the means uh, to, to sort of force its decision um its decisions through so blood and iron meaning war um, and therefore he just basically said to them we'll reform the military with or without you That that's going to be the basis of our power in Prussia um, and just ran an illegal army budget so he completely ignored parliament um, reformed the army illegally um, against the constitution um, and thus basically made himself indispensable to uh, the king because that was entirely Bismarck's doing and nobody else could have done it and would have done it in the same way And so he remained uh, minister-president after that.
1: Why did Bismarck in 1867, after the victory of the Six Weeks War, agree to universal male suffrage for the North German Confederation and then subsequently for the German Reich?
0: That is a good question. I think he regretted that to some extent later when when this became a problem for him. Um, I think... Well, mainly, again, it was, I think, out of a sense of of fear, first of all. So this this idea, he had seen the 1848 revolutions himself and was so appalled by them at the time because they'd come so close to actually toppling and potentially killing um, the Prussian king that he'd gathered an army himself on his estate in Prussia, just literally peasants with pitchforks, um, and was on his way to marching into Berlin, basically, to try and help the king. So that's how... uh, Strong the response from Bismarck's side was to the 1848 revolutions Um, and therefore I think just trying to prevent that from happening again was one thing. Um, Another reason was that the uh, new elites, um, so basically industrialists, um, the rising middle classes, the bourgeoisie, so people like that um, were very liberal minded um, and were becoming really, really powerful due to the huge amounts of money that they accumulated. And this meant that the power balance was shifting away from the old elites, the aristocracy, whose wealth basically um, was based on land ownership and therefore dwindling um due to mass production and so on, the the prices for food and grain and stuff like that had literally just just plummeted. And so Bismarck's kind of weighing up where where does the power lie now? And as it's shifting towards the new elites and the new elites want more liberalism and they want rights in parliament because they haven't got the titles and the kind of inherited power that the old elites had. That's why he's he's beginning to shift power over to their side to get them on, on side with his um with his schemes and with his plans. Um, and lastly, um, it's just a question of, um, making political alliances as well. So Bismarck knew that if he wants to kind of run the country using money, you know, reforming tax systems and so on, he needs those new elites on side. And the only way to do that was to give them more, more power in parliament. So it's just, it's a pragmatic decision. There's nothing to do with Bismarck's, um, sort of personal ideology. If he could have kept a more traditional monarchy,
1: he would have done. What was the Kulterkampf?
0: Um, Basically, an, an argument over uh, church control um, in Germany. So, quite literally, it's culture wars, and, and perhaps in that way, it's a bit relatable to what we're seeing at the moment as well. Um, because the church still had a huge amounts of control over things like um, education, um, marriage, death. You know, any any kind of major events in in people's lives were still very much dominated by. By the Church, and Germany was um, a third Catholic two thirds Protestant uh, once formed um so the the southern states like Bavaria, Baden, and württemberg um they're Catholic um and the the north and Prussia they were um Protestant and Bismarck, being a staunch Protestant himself um was worried about the influence that the papacy and international Catholicism would have on. Uh, German culture. Now that he'd formed Germany, he wanted it to be a, a sort of unified nation-state. Um, meanwhile, the Pope didn't help the situation because he was basically arguing that all of these new civilizations, as he as he called the new nation-states in Europe, so that's mainly Germany and Italy at this point. Um, would bring, so he called them basically um, evil influences over over sort of people's lives um, and therefore started meddling on a political level with these new nation states and that's what Bismarck was worried about. So for Catholics in Germany that basically meant a conflict of interest between their nation state and their religion and that's a dangerous situation to be in. So Bismarck was quite concerned about the sort of security risk that, that might have um, posed. So say if he wanted to go to war, and the Pope said, that's not right. It's, it's an evil war. Catholics don't fight in it. Suddenly, you've got a third of Germans thinking about whether or not to rally you know, to the flag, as it were. And that's what Bismarck was concerned with. Um, and so what he tried to do is secularise society. So um, marriage, for example, um, and that's still the case in Germany today. You have to have a civil marriage. That's the bit that's legal. If you just marry in a church, then you're not legally married. That's something Bismarck introduced. Um, but also things like uh, if you wanted to be a priest, you had to train now at a sort of state run uh, or funded uh, university and things like that. And he was basically trying to, to class power back from the church into state hands. And this worked to some extent in that, um, as I say, some of these secular, secular secularization measures are still in place. Um, But in other ways, um, it didn't uh, work because uh, Bismarck had to roll back in the end and and basically undo many of these uh, measures because he needed the Catholics um, in in the fight against socialism. And so in the late 1870s, um, he made up with the new pope and ended up um, working with the Catholics in Germany against the socialists.
1: How unique was the conservative term in German society after 1873? but not the same tendency to be seen, say, the UK at the same time? Mm,
0: Well, German conservatism conservatism had uh, very particular strains to it. So first of all, as I was just saying, there's both Catholics and Protestants, um, which each bring a sort of particular uh, brand of of, uh, social conservatism with them. Um then you also have a, a really quite virulent anti Semitic element in there. Um this comes largely from the from the this kind of Prussian Juncker caste in the in the northeast of Prussia. Um some of some of whom are really quite extremely anti Semitic and that's another strain that um I wouldn't say is entirely unique to Germany, but it's certainly more widespread um in the in the German elites, um in, in, in conservative elites compared to um say the uk or um or france um so those are, are two particular um elements of that i would say that make it fairly unique what they do also have in common is is this kind of preservation of of uh, royal power and, and particularly you know of the monarchy and, and the sort of old social um system if you will
1: and um why did bismarck push through a policy of so-called state socialism the period after 1878?
0: Uh, Largely to appease the the working classes so uh, the the problem that he encountered was that Prussia um, had already begun even before unification to industrialize extremely quickly so in 1815 when um, Napoleon was defeated um, Prussia played a a key role in that defeat and so as a almost like a reward it was given uh, the Rhineland in the West, um, and this contained vast amounts of coal um, and iron ore um, and became the sort of industrial heartlands of, of Prussia. Um, and with that, it, it industrialised extremely quickly. With that, obviously, came a, an increase in, in the sort of urban working classes. Um, and suddenly you had kind of large urban centres like Berlin and, and Cologne and Hamburg and so on, um, all... Creating pretty horrendous environments for people to live in. So you had kind of large tenement housing suddenly springing up everywhere. Horrible kind of labyrinths of of just you know kind of tiny damp little flats where where people lived with their entire extended families and so on. Conditions were pretty dire, and and so the socialism basically began to appeal. Marx had written his um, Marx and Engels had written their Communist Manifesto around about the time of the um of the revolutions of 1848. So you now had a kind of term and and an ideology to go with that. Um, And this was becoming a real threat. So the first uh, socialist party, the SPD, is is still Germany's um, uh, oldest party to this day. The the current Chancellor Olaf Scholz is is an SPD man um was beginning to establish itself and find its feet. And, and Bismarck was supremely worried about that. Striking had become a huge thing. Trade unions, uh, by 1914, they have three million members. Um, and um That's beginning under Bismarck as well. So he needs to do something. Um And crushing these uprisings isn't an option in perpetuity. It had just about still worked in 1848, but it wasn't going to work forever. And so what he thought was that if the state offers um some form of socialism i e better working conditions um things like old age pensions um uh, accident insurance those kinds of things then the workers would have less of a reason to flock to the kind of more radical ideology of of revolution and and violence basically being used in in the in the class struggle as it were so that's why he introduced those things and and he's still to this day um sort of celebrated as the founding father of of the German welfare system because of that.
1: Why did Bismarck pursue a conservative foreign policy after
0: 1871? Um, Well, it depends if you want to kind of completely brand it that way. His his main... um, concern was that it uh, was Germany's geopolitical position right in the center of Europe. So when he'd formed and merged the German states together and formed Germany in 1871, he had suddenly created the largest nation state in Europe, both in terms of land mass and population. And it completely blew the, the very fragile power balance of Europe um, out of the water. Um, and therefore, he needed to now reassure, particularly Britain and Russia, there was no way that Germany was ever going to reconcile with, with France at this point due to the way that the Franco-Prussian War had been used as a as a means of unifying Germany. Um, but he was looking towards trying to um, appease both Russia and and, and Britain um, and, and at the same time work with the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire and so on to try and basically uh, anchor Germany in Europe and stabilise it so it wouldn't be destroyed by external enemies immediately. Um, And so his entire foreign policy was geared towards that, um, trying to make sure that Germany could find a role for itself that nobody else in Europe um, would have a problem with. And at the same time, isolating France um, diplomatically and politically so that um, it couldn't find uh, kind of alliances against Germany um, in any of the other states, particularly Russia and Britain. Um, And so what Bismarck did effectively was to uh, try and establish Germany as as the honest broker uh, between the other nations. So when the Ottoman Empire, for instance, begins to crumble um, in, in the southeast of Europe, um, and everyone is is wanting a piece of that cake, and and trouble is brewing in the Balkans between all of the large nations. Bismarck basically calls them all to Berlin um, and and holds a congress to try and um, sort this out. Always saying we haven't got an interest in this ourselves. We don't want parts of the Balkans. who are quite contented with the size of the of Germany at the moment, and the same is true for um, empire building as well. He was always staunchly averse to the idea of Germany as a uh, as an imperial. Uh, power, building a world empire. And so, um, again, this was this was geared towards trying to make sure that, that both France and, and Britain wouldn't feel, you know, that Germany would become a threat to them on the world stage. Um, and again, same thing, so Bismarck hosts a conference, the sort of infamous uh, one where, where they divided up Africa, basically, between the other European nations. Um, and again, says Germany has no interest in that, we're just here as a sort of stabilizing force, and he sets Germany up in that way. So that's the entire kind of rationale of his um, foreign policy.
1: Why was Bismarck dismissed in 1890 by William II, and how do the subsequent policies of the so-called New Course differ from those of Bismarck?
0: Um, So uh, Willem II came into power in 1888 um, after a very, very brief spell um, by his father, Frederick III, who I mentioned earlier, the, the liberal... Um, who had throat cancer um, and only stayed on the throne for 99 days, uh, during which he actually couldn't speak. He was that ill uh, with throat cancer. So everybody knew, basically, it would pass over to to Willem II, um, who was Willem I's grandson. Um, He was only 29 years old um, when he became Kaiser um, and had a a really kind of... um, a particular idea in mind as to how he wanted to run the country so in his mind it was time for a new generation Germany now had a young Kaiser this young state had a young dynamic Kaiser and, and that's how he wanted to present himself and he certainly did not want to start his reign with um, a sort of bloodshed or any kind of suppression of the people and so Bismarck's uh, anti-socialist um, agenda so apart from the state socialism, which we talked about earlier, Bismarck also still suppressed the um, socialist movements, particularly strikes, quite often by sending soldiers in and, and basically just having them bloodily sort of crushed. And and that's what he and uh, Willem II argued over quite severely. So Willem II said, you know, I want to be the Kaiser of the of the people, or of the rabble, as he even phrased it, uh, quoting Frederick the Great. Um Meaning, you know, the, he wanted the people to love him basically, and and um didn't want to to start his reign off on this very very negative footing. So the two men clashed uh, quite severely. The constitution didn't help with that. So Bismarck had set the constitution up so that basically the Kaiser sits at the top, um, uh, kind of presiding over the whole system, but really it's the Chancellor that runs runs it for him. And um, this combination only works if the two get on. If you have one strong and one weak partner, basically, in the two work in tandem, that had worked perfectly fine under Willem I and then Bismarck basically just running the show for him. Now that you had two very single-minded men there uh, in, in Willem II and Bismarck, it, they two clash constantly, particularly over socialism. Um And... So when it when it came down to it, basically, over the next two years, everything ground to a halt because, um, you know, the two basically couldn't decide on on what to do. Um, So by um, 1890, two years later, this conflict had completely um, gone pear-shaped for Bismarck. um, And ultimately, it's the Kaiser who appoints or dismisses um, his his chancellors and Bismarck had to go. And then, as you say, a, a so-called new course was implemented by Bismarck's successor, Leo, Leo von Caprivi, um, who was trying to continue on a path of uh, sort of appeasement towards the workers, um, a path that Bismarck by then had abandoned, um, and basically introduced further measures, like he banned Sunday work, for example, um, and some other measures to try and um, keep the keep the working classes happy most of whom saw this as a bit of a fig leaf, so they didn't really take it all that seriously and, and continued to um, support the SPD and, and the trade unions. Um, so that problem didn't really go away, which is why, basically, Caprivi didn't last all that long. He lasted four years. Um, and then the elites said, no, 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 his new course had gone far too far um, in appeasing the working classes, and he needed to go as well.
1: Do you agree with the historian John Roll who uh, his thesis wherein, as per, um, uh, as per the same, he argues that after 1890, Germany had uh, a personal regime of monarchical rule.
0: Um, that's been pushed back a little bit now by, by other historians as well. So Christopher Clarke, for example, um, is, is also saying that that's going a little bit too far. That's what Willem wanted, certainly. So he, his idea was ultimately to get rid of, uh, the constitution, get rid of, um, the, the office of the chancellor because he didn't see any point in it. And he just wanted to run the country under this, what, what he called personal uh, rule. So basically, like a direct, old fashioned, absolute monarchy. Uh, that was simply impossible at the time. You just couldn't do that anymore because Europe had moved in a direction politically and, and socially um, that made this kind of almost medieval uh, system of, of monarchy impossible. Uh, you don't see that anywhere else either in Europe. So the other monarchies that still existed, particularly Britain, had also moved in a far more uh, liberal and, and constitutional direction. Um, the only aspect I think where Wilhelm did have a lot of power and, and exercised it as well as is the appointment and dismissal of of the government effectively. So the the chancellor at this point was not in any shape or form responsible to Parliament but only to the Kaiser, and therefore that's quite powerful um, in the fact that in the sense that if the um if the the Chancellor didn't do what the Kaiser wanted him to do, then you know you can just dismiss and appoint them, and that gives willem quite a lot of power over the sort of direction of of government, but he himself was influenced very very heavily by his social circle um the people around him, the circumstances that he found himself in um so he's by no means a a free agent and and can just exert that that personal rule um in in the way it, you know that it's often been portrayed. He's certainly not a, a very kind of central, extremely central figure in this entire process. I don't think.
1: Why did William II appoint Bernhard von Bülow as chancellor in 1900?
0: Uh, it's quite a complicated situation at this point. So Bülow was um, part of Wilhelm's personal social circle. Um, he because he had dismissed Bismarck, and Bismarck had died at this point. In any case, he, he died in um, in 98. Um, So he was without kind of political advisors that were there previously. His father and grandfather were both um, dead. And so Wilhelm turns to this kind of very small and exclusive social circle, the so-called Liebenberg circle, and and Bülow was part of that. Um, So that's one reason. Um, He's just just basically a personal friend of, of Wilhelm's um secondly Buhler was actually quite a capable administrator um had had a bit of a, a sort of history in in um, in sort of running state matters before and, and was quite experienced in that way so he seemed a good fit um and perhaps most importantly he was happy for um for uh, wilhelm's kind of imperial policy so for germany to build a, um, a world empire it's called weltpolitik Um, for that to be implemented Um, and so Wilhelm just needed a a chancellor that wouldn't constantly um, you know kind of advise caution but but actually just go ahead and and build Germany's empire in the way that he wanted it to he was also very good at building alliances in the Reichstag that was still there obviously and needed to be dealt with. Um, the Reichstag uh, is the German parliament basically and, and needed to pass all laws at this point and is still universally elected by, by all males over the age of 25. So B-Law also proved quite capable of, of building alliances there that, that actually created majorities so that laws could be passed. Um, so he seemed a good fit basically all around. One of Willem's favourites um, ide- ideologically on, on the right side as far as Willem was concerned and able to uh, implement those policies.
1: So you would say that uh, Catherine Lerman in her characterization of Bilo as a quote, the Chancellor as here goes a bit too far?
0: Um no, actually that works. I mean, like I said, he was part of this of this kind of very um, almost incestuous little circle of, of advisors that Willem had gathered around him. So they you know, kind of like a self perpetuating power circle really, and in that sense it, it does come fairly close to being you know like a court kind of um situation so it it works in that sense but he just happens to also be quite a capable uh, politician at the same time
1: and why did bulow fall in 1909
0: uh, uh because that entire liebenberg circle fell um so what happened was that um one of uh, Wilhelm's very, very close uh, friends, Philip zu um, who was kind of at the heart of this Liebenberg circle, um, uh, was um, exposed as a homosexual um, in the media. And there was a whole, uh, this was really aimed at the Kaiser. So, so the press basically were trying to indirectly criticise the Kaiser by exposing this um, scandal of his kind of inner uh, court or his inner friendship circle um and eulenberg made the mistake of fighting this in court um as a libel case which then meant it was dragged like literally every detail of it through you know the the eyes of the public basically for for years and years um and this forced wilhelm, wilhelm to uh, distance himself from the entire circle and and Bülow was part of that and and kind of part of the um downfall was caused by that the other problem was the so-called daily Telegraph affair um, so um, the what happened was that Willem had given an interview to um, a, a British aristocrat um, who was a friend of his in, in, um, in at his castle in England um, and this aristocrat basically said to him well look you, you said a really you know kind of good series of comments here that that show that Germany is really quite um pro Britain and you are and, and you know I think it would be a good idea if we published this and sent these comments that were really just a private interview between the two men uh, you know in front of a fireplace in some castle in britain uh to the to the press to the Daily Telegraph. It was standard protocol that any press comments on the royal family would be sent back to them for approval first before being published. So the Daily Telegraph kind of did the right thing, sent the whole script back to uh, Germany. Bülow, as the uh, leader of the government, was supposed to look over that and make sure that there's no uh, kind of screamers in there. Um he didn't, for whatever reason, it's still contested why. Um but basically just passed it down. Um the, the sort of hierarchy didn't deal with it himself and eventually the the approval just came back from Germany without any changes to the script. So Wilhelm's kind of very clumsy and very um unfortunate remarks that he made in private were suddenly published in the British press and this contained comments like, You English are mad, mad as March hares. You know, which he kind of jokingly said over a glass of whiskey, um, and suddenly they're they're there in the public eye. Um, and Bula was eventually blamed for that because he should have uh, checked the uh, the script. And the fallout from that, the embarrassment of it, um, meant that you know some heads had to roll, and, and his was part of that. So that was another reason. It was both the, the scandal over the Liebenberg Circle as well as the the Daily Telegraph affair, and Bula had to had
1: to go. And wasn't it also the case that uh, the failure of uh, his block, Bülow block, which was elected in 1907, failed to remedy the issue of uh, tax reform?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, that became an increasing issue. So Bülow just about managed to build, as you say, the the Bülow um after the so-called hot and tot elections um, over imperial um, issues. So basically what happened was that a series of scandals came out of the German colonies, um, most uh, famously the, the massacre um, that, that basically happened against the so-called Hottentot um, people, hence why the, the election was, was called after that as well. Um, and Bülow argued on the back of that that the uh, imperial cause was still right and the policies were so popular that he basically uh, got a very conservative pro-empire Um, coalition elected back in because the people wanted to, the German people were quite sort of happy for the empire to be extended and so on. And and this Bülow bloc um, was a very fragile alliances of different conservative parties um, in the Reichstag when that, however, failed um, to uh, pass various different legislation from tax reforms uh, to various uh, army bills and things as well that were later than um, pushed through. Uh, by bethmann Holweg, the following Chancellor, um he also had kind of served his purpose as a as a sort of negotiator between the Kaiser and his Parliament because that also didn't seem to work anymore, so there was absolutely no reason to to keep bulow in in effect in the end.
1: Why was uh Bethmann Holweg appointed Chancellor when unlike all the others, he did not have any uh diplomatic experience.
0: Um, well, he it's maybe important to say that he didn't actually want to be chancellor either. Um, he's said to have broken into tears when, um, like, actually cried when when he was told that he had to be the chancellor now because he saw it as a bit of a poison chalice, which it what which it was um, it's an impossible position to be in at that point with socialists and liberals becoming increasingly raucous in Parliament and you're supposed to sell them policies that come from from the staunchly conservative Wilhelm. Um, so he didn't want to be a chancellor. Um, they needed somebody who came from the outside. So it was in no way connected really to the, um, to the whole Liebenberg circle, but it still needed to be somebody who Wilhelm trusted. Um, so definitely an aristocrat. Um, he had built a little bit of a reputation as a, a sort of military man, um, which is why he was deemed to be capable of pushing these army reforms um, through. Um, So that was was another reason. And and these factors just fit. He just seemed a sort of calm, middle of the road, um, inoffensive um, politician who would be um, able to uh, basically convince Parliament of of some of the policies that needed to be passed. And he wasn't tainted by any of the past scandals. So there there weren't too many candidates that fit the fit that profile.
1: Would it be correct to say that you do not uh, entirely agree with the new consensus on the origins of the Great War? being that, um, as per which, um, that Germany was not uniquely responsible and that both France and Russia were equally responsible?
0: Um, I'm not sure that is the entirely the consensus. Certainly over here there's still a raging debate about that. Um, but yes, I, I don't know, I'm a bit enthused over this because I, I do think that uh, Wilhelm was quite happy with the idea of, of um, a war in Europe. You can you can sense that and see that in a lot of his um, correspondence, not least in the sort of uh, what's been dubbed the War Council of 1912, where he meets up um, with his his military advisors And they go through um, a a sort of scenario of, of what would happen if Germany goes to war and when Germany goes to war and so on. So they're very kind of concrete war plans being made in 1912. Um, you also have the Schlieffen Plan in place since um, 1905, um, which is basically a, a sort of plan to try and avert a, a two-front war situation. Initially in 1905, but then over the years, as they keep amending and discussing it, it becomes a bit of a formula for victory, really, in the in the eyes of of Wilhelm and his his um, staff. You have figures like Helmut von Moltke, um, who has a famous uncle, also called Helmut von Molke, sometimes dubbed the older, um, who basically uh, played a key role in the Franco-Prussian War and therefore in the unification of of Germany in 1871. And now his nephew, uh, Helmut uh, Molke the Younger, uh, needs his own war basically to prove his own worth um, and is keen to push that and also pushes Willem in that direction. So there's certainly a lot of German um, action towards war. But I'm not convinced that Wilhelm appreciated the nature, the scale and the complexity of the conflict that that, that would unleash eventually. So I do think that there is an element of German guilt there. Um, but I don't think anybody appreciated the impact that technology would have, the the way that the alliance would be triggered. Wilhelm, for instance, was completely obsessed with Britain due to his uh, British or English heritage um, through his mother's uh, side of the family, he saw himself as part of the British royal family and and therefore was in himself convinced that Britain would stay out of it, which if they had, it would have been a completely different conflict. Um, So I think there's a lot of hindsight still involved in these debates um, in terms of attributing guilt to different parties. um, And it's not easy to untangle that from... um, the situation as it was in, in 1914. So in my mind, there is an element of German guilt there because of the way that a local war in the Balkans and certainly in the East was desired and, and brought about um, through German action. Um, but on the flip side, this kind of extremely complex situation in Europe was was almost ripe for war in any case. So I don't think there is a straightforward answer to that.
1: So you, you would posit that there was a German guild over and above anything that could be attributed to, say, Russia or France, or for that matter, Austria?
0: Um, certainly in the short term. So I, th- I think one way or another, you would have probably seen conflict in Europe um, due to the situation that, you know, you've just described as well, with the other European powers having, um, you know, a sort of say in the hand in, in the conflict as well, that that was brewing. Um I mean, Bismarck quite famously said in the 1880s, some great European war is going to come out of some damn foolish thing in the Balkans, as he phrased it. Um, You know, this is decades before. Um, So if you want to nail me down on this, I would say the way that the war unfolded in 1914 um, is down to uh, German action and German direction. But conflict was on the cards one way or another.
1: Why did Germany enter the war united politically, the so-called Bergfrieden, and why did that unity subsequently decline?
0: Um, It's the same effect, really, that you see in 1871 as well. So as Bismarck said, it it would take blood and iron to get stuff done, and this is certainly true for German unity. The German states had as much in common as as they had to divide them, and the only reason why they unified in 1871 was because of the wars against uh, Denmark, Austria, and and France. Um, And it's on the back of that, uh, what I call defensive nationalism in the book, uh, that Germany unifies. However... The same is true in 1914 as well. So when, you know, as we've just seen, there's an increasingly fractious political situation in Germany, whereby parliament uh, is now certainly from 1912, the last election before the war, um, split in half, almost literally between the socialists and and Democrats and liberals on the one side um, and the conservative elements on the other. And you have almost complete political stagnation. So when war breaks out in 1914, Willem says to to this very uh, divided Reichstag, well, look, we're all in the same boat now. Um, Germany needs to be defended. Um, and I, I don't see or I don't know political parties anymore. He famously said, I only know Germans. And that really strikes a chord with people um, and, and works. So the socialists immediately and the social democrats immediately agree to um, abandon any strike action um, and ban it for the rest of the war. Um, they also agree to pass uh, the military budget for the for the um, uh, for the war effort. Um, they even sign an enabling act uh, right away in August 1914, which allows the executive to uh, basically put the country in a in a sort of martial law. Um, Situation um, and and abandon all political power and and they basically give up on democracy at this point, which isn't Germany isn't unique in that. Um, this the same thing happens in in France and in Britain as well because emergency legislation needs to be passed quickly, um, but it happens more radically in Germany. You basically see the country run as a as a military dictatorship throughout the war, sometimes called the silent dictatorship because it wasn't an actual change of the constitution. They just kind of did it, um, and so. You know, the Sporkfreude thing is is part of a wider problem. I think that Germany has in its in its first incarnation. In that, what binds it together is is nationalism and is is militarism, and war. Um, and you see that in 1914 as much as you do in 1871, and in that respect, not much had had changed. So suddenly, all of these religious and social differences that we just talked about uh, become null and void, and and Germany rallies together. This begins to break down. Um in uh, 1816 on the back of the fact that the war has now taken much longer than than was originally anticipated. So most people thought, uh, you know, the sort of famous saying that the war would be over by Christmas and certainly within a few months because the last war that people had known, namely the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, um, was over in that time, as was the war against um, uh, Austria, as was the war against Denmark. Um, So certainly... Not since the Napoleonic Wars had, had Europe seen a war, um, you know, as, as sort of comprehensive and as large as that one. So people hadn't anticipated the size of it. They also hadn't anticipated that civilians would be affected by it um, because of the labor blockade and, and other problems with uh, food supplies and so on. So by 1916, people are uh, starving. They're miserable. Um, they they haven't even got supplies. It's not just food. It's also things like coal, electricity. Uh, Soap, coffee, all of that is is, uh, becoming very um, scarce and you end up with a situation that is affecting pretty much everyone in Germany. People are looking out, um, you know, the the sort of lists that are being published at town halls and things of the people that have died um, in the war. People go there every day to check if their husbands, brothers, fathers, friends um, and so on are on it. Um, So it's, it's pretty bad at this point and it's not the defensive war anymore. Uh, that the government had promised in 1914, and that's why the Burgfrieda breaks down um, and turns kind of in its op- into its opposite with the anger spilling over and, and being directed at the Kaiser now.
1: So you would date the uh, origins of the so called silent dictatorship uh, to August, September 1914, not uh, August 1916 when Falkenheim is dismissed, or for that matter July 1917 when uh, Bethmann Hollweg is dismissed?
0: Well, the the actual silent dictatorship starts in, in 1916, as you say, with uh, the it's called the third OHL or the third uh, kind of incarnation of the um, of the of the high command, of the German high command, because that's when the military takes over. And um, so at that point, the the third OHL has got almost the trappings of a, of a government. They have a, a department for economics, one for censorship one for foreign policy, even. So at this point, the military really literally runs the entire country. What happens in 1914 with the Enabling Act, however, is that Parliament um, abdicates uh, sort of its power over to the executive um, and that creates a a kind of temporary dictatorship situation which hands power over to the political elites. The difference between the two is that obviously um, it's still civilian politicians in 1914 technically running the country. Um, under the Chancellor, was from 1916 onwards, when you have foreign policy dictated by, um, by, the, by the military uh, caste, suddenly you end up with a military dictatorship. That's the difference between the two. Uh, but one way or another, democracy has pretty much gone out of the window by, 19, by 1914.
1: Would it be the case that uh, Germany's defeat in the Great War automatically led to the end of the empire and the Prussian monarchy?
0: Um, it's Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is that when um, this defensive war idea is, is given up and, and you end up with the so-called Siegfried or victory piece, um, people... Take that very badly, and they're looking for someone to blame for that. And because the the imperial regime insists on um, perpetuating a war that is quite blatantly lost, certainly from 1917 on, everyone can see that with the entry of the U.S. into the war. Whilst on the on the eastern front, the on the eastern front, the war is ended with with Russian defeat. So you know, it's, it's obvious to all and sundry that Germany cannot win the war on the western front. And should, you know, seek peace in some shape or form because they don't to the German people. It's it's more and more obvious that if they don't get rid of the Kaiser, they can't end this war. And uh, this is then exacerbated by President uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, demands that uh, Germany needs to become a democracy before it can have peace. So ultimately, when Germany does sue for peace, um, uh, it's an American demand that Germany must get rid of its its monarchy first before it can have peace. And he he says that very very directly and explicitly, which also then means that for the German people, if they want peace, they need to get rid of um, the, the Kaiser and his uh, regime. So one way or another, peace is tied to um, to the abolishment of, um, of the monarchy.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: Um, probably what I said at the beginning. So there's this idea that the uh, German Empire was more than a militaristic Dictatorship, um, because of uh, the way that, as we've seen, Parliament causes repeated problems um, and, and causes the government to uh, implement quite kind of progressive um, ideas such as the welfare state and so on, uh, secularism and, and so on. So there is a, a huge element of modernity. It's at least a semi-democracy. And that's, I think, the key idea that I would like to get across. It shouldn't be entirely dominated by its end. Um, in a way, and by what came out of the out of the um, consequences of the First World War.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Hoyer, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Hoyer.
0: Thank you.